0: We are continuing in the book of Galatians. Now, I want, to, I want you to know that I know that many of you in this church have a gift for growing things. Maybe not Alan. Uh, but many of you do a great job, a wonderful job of taking care of plants and so forth. But I, I want to let you know, I'm kind of on Alan's side. Uh, unlike you, I'm not the grower of green things. If I had a plan and I tried... To grow, for instance, this. If that was my goal. To create this life and, and bring it to fruition and beauty. And that's what I wanted to do. What I would come up with is this. I do not grow things successfully. Uh, Rachel and I managed to kill a bonsai tree. Which I'm told is virtually impossible to do. I used to joke that we could kill an air fern because you don't do anything in an air fern, just hang it up. I can't prove that I could kill an air fern because I never had the courage to try because that really would have been embarrassing. Uh, now, I do not have the gift. Rachel finally got to the place where she could grow things and keep it alive, and we were both happy that she was around for Jessica. Uh, but, but I couldn't. I have never learned to grow things. And that's a choice I've made. And I want to make this very clear. It's a choice I can live with. So please, after the service, no advice on how to keep plants growing. I will let someone else do their gifts and talents and do that. This is not something that I am willing to to endeavor, but Maxie Dunham points out there are some choices in life that we must inevitably face and deal with and take very seriously. He he spoke and he said, "Life on Earth is a life in the making. It involves constant choice and constant conflict. Conflict between the different facets of our nature that struggle for dominance. Conflict between the causes that vie for our uh, allegiance." conflict between self-dominance and self-surrender. Then he said, through the continuous making of resolute decisions, we pattern our lives and we mold our character. Today, we'll be dealing with the last of the commands that Paul writes in Galatians. And in doing so, we need to hear, surprise, surprise, That it's focused on choices. So if you will stand with me as we read in in standing in honor of the word. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Um, And Paul wrote, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And to especially those who are of the household of faith. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. These sentences have been given by Paul, and in them he offers a warning and an encouragement to his readers. As he's drawing the the practical application of everything he said to a close, these are his marching orders. These kind of sum up much of what he's already said as he talks about that. Now we need to understand that what Paul is talking about today is the law of the harvest. And what that means for us, spiritually speaking, in our walks with God. We are meant, folks, to understand this law. We are meant to live and will live by the law of harvest. But we want to do so in such a way that it honors God. So let's look at the truths that Paul delineates here. And the first Is the warning. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Now that word for mock in the original text is built on the word for nose. And it came figuratively to speak about showing contempt for somebody by lifting up your nose in their presence. For us, we kind of go that different direction. You look down your nose at the people that you're mocking. But it's an idea of pure mockery. And, and what's important to understand, when Paul said God will not be mocked, God is not mocked, he, Paul did not mean that humans never mock God. Folks, that's obvious. The reality of humans mocking God is as old as humanity itself. In the Garden of Eden, even Adam mocked the Lord, the God who created them, when they chose to ignore his commands to assert themselves, to gain their own personal autonomy. Essentially, when they ate of the fruit, they were saying, we can handle our own lives. We will be our own gods. Later on in Israel's history, King Saul mocked the God who brought him to the kingdom, who made him king. He did so... By asserting his own will over the commands of God. So that he broke the will of God. The God who brought him to the kingdom. And it doesn't take much. You don't have to pay a whole lot of attention. Just look around. And you will see everywhere you look today. Human beings mocking God and his people. Lifting him up to ridicule. Lifting up those who believe. It is everywhere around us. So what did Paul mean? God is not mocked because clearly he is. Well, what Paul is saying is, God is not mocked because he will not accept it. Whenever God is mocked, there are consequences to pay. God will take care of those who decide to ridicule, deride, and ignore him. Now, it's very important that you understand something. First of all, the word is used only here in the New Testament. Only place. And it does not primarily refer to verbal scoffing at God. This isn't, let's tell a bunch of God jokes that make God look like a buffoon. Instead, the idea of mocking means everything about our lives. The way we act, the way we live, the way we treat other people, the way we think is making a ridicule of God. the, The Theological Dictionary of New Testament points out it means to despise God by everything in us, the way we respond. So it doesn't mean mocking never happens, but it means God is going to take care of it. He will not permit anyone to mock him. That's the reason we read that incredibly cheerful passage of scripture at the beginning of the service. I wanted you to be able to see in depth what may be one of the strongest passages of scripture that actually show the human race mocking God. They're raiding, they're raging, we're not going to follow God. They're shaking their fists as it were in the face of God saying, we are going to do what we want and there's nothing you can do to stop us. Then did not you hear God's reaction to their rage? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury. If you ever had a a little child come up determined angry, angrily, they're going to beat you up. It's sort of kind of funny. But there comes a point in time, enough is enough. And the then falls. You don't treat daddy that way. God laughs. Because it's ridiculous for the creatures he created to say, we don't need God. R.G. Lee was pastor of the Belmont Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee for almost 33 years. And he preached one of the most famous sermons of the 20th century. He didn't just preach it. A whole lot of other preachers preached it too. The title explains it all. Payday, someday. Eventually, judgment is certain. So Paul warned them, stop being misled. He doesn't, it just doesn't mean do not be deceived. It means stop being deceived. And the way it's worded suggests that they may be willingly going along. They're liking what they're hearing. They, they may be openly being misled. Uh, Clarence Jordan has written a great book. I encourage you to get it. Uh, the Cotton Patch Gospel. It's a retelling of the New Testament as though it happened in modern America in the South. And it's flavored with all such wonderful Southern statements. And he, he talks about this verse this way. Don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. You can't turn up your nose at God. So stop it. When someone's trying to fool you, delude you, mislead you, don't let it happen. Now what does this mean? Why is Paul saying God is not mocked? Well for us. And I need you to hear me very carefully. We must understand a major truth behind the command against taking the Lord's name in vain. You see, I believe this verse this verse may be giving the clearest definition Of what it means to take God's name in vain. Mocking Him. Now please understand me. In the modern era in which we live, when people use the the title, the name God, and sling it together with profanity, it's a terrible thing. It's one of the few profanities that really bother me. Most of them I just let slip past me and I, I ignore them. That one bothers me. But folks, understand me. As bad as that is, a far worse mocking of God is found in this statement. A life that is willing to mock God, to thumb the nose in the face of God, to deride Him by the way you live. By ignoring everything He is, Declaring with your life, he is nothing, we don't need him, he doesn't even exist. Now the lost world does this readily. And it's hard to find a modern comedian, comedian that does not launch a tirade against religion at some point in their set. And it's bad. And we can't excuse it when they do it they're doing something horribly wrong against their creator. But they are lost people. Did you catch that? They are lost people who are behaving like lost people. We cannot be naive to think everybody who doesn't know the Lord is somehow going to love everything he says or love his people. But the danger here. I think this is why Paul brings it up. This can also be seen in a Christian's life. People like you and me who profess faith in God but whose lives are mocking Him. Every time we claim to love Jesus while spewing out hatred for people, and I mean anybody, we're mocking God. Every time we self-righteously condemn the sin in others while excusing our own sin as somehow not being serious, we are mocking God. We can be guilty of mocking God and in essence taking His name in vain by the way we live our lives. And when we do that, when we allow ourselves to be so influenced by the world, you can't tell the difference Between the person who says I love Jesus. And the person who says I hate him. The integrity of our witness is destroyed. And our ability to honestly speak into the hearts of people is hampered. Our self-deception. Has to come to an end. The way I live my life. Publicly and privately will either bring honor to God or dishonor. And we need to make a choice. And I believe the choice we need to make today, we must stand with a commitment that our lives will honor, not dishonor our God. When I realize every time I behave in an ungodly fashion, I am bringing God's name into derision, and it has to stop. So, as you let this, as you ruminate on this throughout the day, and you think about this, maybe this should be, these should be our prayers. Help us, Lord, to not be deceived. Don't let us fall for the lies of the enemy, for the lies of this world, God. Help us, dear God, to be true to your will in our lives. Help us to live the life that you created us and redeemed us to live. Because, God, we want to honor you. We want to honor you. The idea that my life may be used as an excuse to keep someone from Christ one of the hardest things I even have to consider. God will not be mocked. Which brings us to the next truth. We will reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow. I'm not a gardener, but I, I, got, I got this. If I plant the only green vegetable that I've loved all of my life, green beans, I know it's not going to turn into those horrible, horrible little things that look like cabbage and just have this horrible smell. I know that. And Paul, when he talks about this, you need to understand. All, Paul gave an extreme example as a wake up call for the Galatians. He's kind of shaking them here. He's wanting them, he's using he's going to the nth degree, going as far as he can to get them to understand what he's saying. And he seems to be using what may be a proverbial statement, the very flow of the text and the rhythm and the the poetry of the text. This may be something that was being said a lot. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And then he says, if you sow to the flesh, that human nature, you're going to reap corruption. I like the ESV's translation of that one word so much I've chosen to use it. uh, Because it's a really good picture. Because that word speaks of the awful stench of a corpse in decay. Some translations use the word destruction. There are a few that actually use decay. But it's this horrible thing. and, And it's the consequences of our sin, someone has written, are no more clearly seen than after a lifetime of sin, you take a look at the ravages that have happened to the body. You see all of the pain and all of the stress that has happened. Because they made bad choices in life. But Paul isn't just looking at what happens here. He's casting the vision forward, and he's saying, "All those people who live their lives according to the flesh, they have no place for God in their life, they have no purpose for God in their life, the corruption and destruction they face will be an ultimate one. And they will stand before a holy God one day and deal with their sowing. Now, the reason I know that it's not just talking about how somebody who's 40 years old looks 80 because of the hard life they've lived. Listen to the contrast. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap what? Eternal life. Not just life. Life. Eternal life. And eternal life is not primarily about living forever and ever. Eternal life is the life of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit freely given to God's children that we may reflect His life. We may reflect His truth. It is a quality of life that changes us and gives us wholeness and meaning and purpose. And that ultimately will be found when one day all of this is drawn to a close. And we stand before God our maker. And we'll be with him throughout eternity. So to sow in the spirit is the exact same thing Paul's talking about. When he says live by the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. Bear the fruit of the spirit. Live your life yielded to God. Paul put it this way the Colossians Set your minds on the things of God, things that are, uh, that are above, not things that are on the earth. It's a contrast, it's a reality. So it's not just about, ooh, I get to live forever. For, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining into the sun, that's a great thought, but folks, the eternity is we will always be in the presence of God. And eternal life is the present possession of Christ's children. John three thirty six. Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So it's already ours, but one day we get to see it in fulfillment. Someone said, imagine going to sleep and waking to step into eternity with God. It's absolutely amazing. So when he says... You're going to sow what you reap. And he wants them to understand this is so bad. A life lived after the flesh has one end. Why would he bring it up? And why is he talking to Christians? And this is what it means for us, folks. The Christian life is not a game to be played. And a lot of people play church. Church. And we can't. I believe that Paul wrote in this ultimate way of pointing to absolute judgment on those who have lived their lives out in the flesh to shake up the Galatians. And it was a warning. You cannot let sin run roughshod over you. He's already said that earlier in the text. He will tell you the same thing to the Romans. He will give warnings of this nature in virtually all of his letters. You cannot continue to live the life you had before you met Christ. And we need to hear that warning. I don't believe that this is a warning that God's going to strip your eternal life away from you once you've been given the gift of eternal life. It's yours. But I believe it is a warning to take sin seriously. And its consequences must not be taken lightly. It's a call for us to wake up, to wake from the self-deception. So Paul uses the most extreme way he can. William Barclay was a Scottish minister uh, back in the 20th centuries, and he wrote almost 200 years ago now, Christianity never took the thread out of life. The Greeks believed in nemesis. This was the Greek goddess of retributive justice. And they believed if you did something wrong, sooner or later, nemesis would get you. And you would pay. And Barclay seems to be saying, even the pagan world understood that there were consequences for bad and horrible actions. And then he wrote, and this is where it hurts. What we do not, Christians, what we do not sufficiently remember is this. It is blessedly true that God can and does forgive men for their sins. But not even he can wipe out the consequence of sin. If a man sins against his body, sooner or later, he will pave in ruined health. Even if he is forgiven. If a man sins against his loved ones, sooner or later, somebody's heart will be broken. Even if he is forgiven. And then he wrote, we cannot trade on the forgiveness of God. There is a moral law in the universe because God, who created the universe, is a holy God. And Barclay warns if we break that law, it is to our own peril. So we've got a wake up call. You have to make a choice. Do I want to live for God a life in the Spirit, keeping in step? sowing to the Spirit, or do I want to live kind of in that lukewarm state of Laodicea? Not completely abandoning God, but not really living for Him. And what that means for us, what are we supposed to do today? We must determine to commit ourselves to being sowers of the Spirit. And this is not a one-time commitment, folks. Again, as you ruminate, as you think about this throughout the day and, and, and weeks to come, this may be a prayer that you need to pray a lot. I do. Help me, O giver of life, and that eternal. Help me to so live my life that my thoughts, my deeds, my words... Reflect that I truly am your child. Help me God. Because I can't do this on my own. Help me God Almighty. And cause me. To grow into the person. I was born again to be. Let me focus my life on you. Well we have one last. Part of the law of. Harvest, and it is still carrying on the same thing. Our final our final truth, we must heed the call to never quit doing acts of good. We need to listen to what Paul was writing to these people. Folks, this is not just Paul's idea. I hope you understand. Everything he said in Galatians is not Paul sitting down and thinking, how can I make things really tough on them, or how can I make things really good for them? I need to come up with some ideas. I need to brainstorm. Folks, the Spirit of God is leading Paul here. And when he writes this, what Paul was doing, simply Paul was calling his readers to follow the call, the Spirit's call, of doing good. The Spirit's call. Again, from the Cotton Patch Gospel. Just recently got a new copy of it. And I'm loving it all over again. So let's not give up the good fight. For our harvest will come. In it's own good time. That's a really good. uh, Translation of this. I In it's own good time. Every chance that we have. Let's work for the good of all. And especially for members of the church. And he says. It'll come in it's own good time. If we keep on keeping on. And when when he wrote this it was decades and decades ago and now keep on keeping on it may have be a little bit of a cliche but i really like it keep on don't stop keep doing what you know to be doing folks because in reality this is exactly what paul is saying he's telling these people don't quit Keep pushing forward. And I, it's very important that you notice here, Paul includes himself. Did you notice that? When I read through, did you, did you notice a pronoun change? Paul says, eh, let us not grow weary. I've often wondered what it would be like to crawl into the mind of Paul for just a minute. He was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was in a shipwreck, he was mobbed, and almost all of his churches didn't list to a single thing he said. And he has to keep writing them. You need to get right. You think there was ever a moment in time Paul was just like wringing his hands and and maybe Paul might have said, Jesus, just come get me. He needed the encouragement and he's giving it to them. In Galatians 5 through 6, the whole two chapters are dedicated to the idea. These are the things you need to be doing as a Christian. Things like loving your neighbor as yourself, keeping in step with the Spirit by bearing the fruit of the Spirit restoring fallen brothers and sisters, bearing each other's burdens. And he goes on and on. The list just keeps on. And I know if you've been paying attention at all, there's a lot of repetition in Galatians. And I've not shied away from that because when the Bible repeats something, it really wants us to hear it. So why does Paul keep telling these people? Because he has summarized everything he said in 5 and 6 by this doing good, why does he keep telling them to do the very obvious plain duties of the Christian faith? John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, had one of the best responses to that idea when he looked at this text and he said, this precept is especially necessary. Now folks, get ready. If you think I've meddled, this text is especially necessary because we are naturally lazy in the duties of love. This is an important text he says because there are many little stumbling blocks that hinder and put off even the best-intentioned person. Then he points out, It's necessary because we're going to be helping people and we meet a whole lot of unworthy and ungrateful people. When we help them, they don't gush and all that kind of stuff. He said the very vast numbers of the people who need help overwhelm us. And we give and we give and and it feels like we're never going to be finished. And then he said our warmth is damped by the coldness of other people. I've talked about in the past the bucket brigade in church. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it in Bay Vista. But it's a phenomenon I've seen all of my Christian life. Somebody gets excited about Jesus. They're on fire for the Lord. And somebody in the church, okay, that's that's fine, but you'll get over it. And they throw the bucket of coldness upon them. And he says, we... We come across coldness. And then the whole world is so full of hindrances, which turn us aside from the path. And so he said, therefore Paul does well to confirm our efforts so that we do not faint through weariness. Do not grow weary. That means to become discouraged, to lose spirit, to lose hope, to, to you're, you're so affected, you're slacking up on all the things you know to do. To give up was a word that was literally focused on, On someone who is totally exhausted and worn out. So he tells the Galatians, you need to take every opportunity you have to practice care for all people. Not just to those who need it or deserve it. Every opportunity, that's a word for time. It means every opportunity. Folks, God gives us a lot of opportunities in life that we let slip away from us. Paul said, you pay attention. and You take those. Again, not just for the people who know it, who deserve it. Look at Jesus. Folks, Jesus shared his love with a lot of different people. He, had, he ate with the Pharisees, Luke 7 tells us. He ate with publicans and sinners, Luke 15 and 19 tell us. He ate with his friends, Luke 10 tells us. And when he is answering the question, who's my neighbor? He points out the Samaritan was a good neighbor. Why? Because he helped his neighbor, the enemy, the Jew that was in the ditch. It's been pointed out, Paul's call to do good to everybody is built on this idea. Everyone on earth is created in the image of God. And God's word says he causes the rain and the the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. He is constantly giving graces to his, his creation. Even when they're in rebellion. Created in the image of God. And it's been pointed out. When we forget that. When we forget that every person we come across is created in the image of God. That's when we begin to fall victim to. The kinds of sins that have plagued humanity throughout its existence. Hurting each other. Hating each other. Holding back the good. Only delivering the evil. Because if I can forget all of these people out there creating the image of God, I can treat them any way I want. But please notice that Paul did talk about, and yet, be sure you really do good to the household of faith. Now that doesn't mean you ignore everybody else on earth. But in the household of faith, folks, that means other believers. We are family. And we're supposed to take care of each other. Scripture says if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel. Well, I don't think that means just your blood kin. We are family and we need to be taking care of each other. But notice, this is still the idea of harvest. Sowing good and not quitting. Not letting the passage of time, that time between planting and reaping, so overwhelm you that you give up. What does this mean? True faith will produce godly action. We need to hold on to the promise. When we persevere, when we refuse to give up, when we don't tire out and surrender, we find that it's worth the vigilance. Up the road a piece from us is William Carey University. I've mentioned Carey from time to time. He was a a missionary to India. He arrived in India in 1793 with a, a burden to preach the gospel. And folks... He preached for 7 years every Sunday 7 years without a single convert And even though he grew discouraged he did not give up he wrote to his sisters back home in England I feel as a farmer does about his crops sometimes i think the seed is springing and then the and thus i have hope and then the sun comes and blasts everything away my hopes are gone like a cloud and there were only weeds which were growing. Or a little corn sprung up and was quickly, it quickly died, either choked out by the weeds or parched by the sun, persecution. Yet I still hope in God and will go forth in His strength and make mention of His righteousness, even of His only. After seven years, December 28, 1800, Kerry baptized in the Ganges River, his first Hindu convert, Krishna. Paul, ironically a carpenter like our Lord. William Ward witnessed the baptism and he wrote in his, his diary about this man who was stripped away from paganism. And he wrote, Ye gods of stone and clay, did ye not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? And that was only the beginning, folks. With Carrie and his co-workers at the Serampore Mission in India, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came to faith in Christ. If our lives have been touched by the Spirit of God, the grace of God, if we're committed to living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, we can reach out in Christian love and seek to touch the world. That's our call. That's our purpose. Robert Rappa challenged me. He said, Christian ethical and social responsibility, Paul further indicates here, is all-embracing. And he says, believers have both the Spirit-given empowerment and the God-given opportunities positively to affect the world around them by keeping in step with the Spirit. We have obligation then to manifest the Spirit's presence in our lives while among fellow believers and to all those outside. We are obligated to do good. So what do we do today? What is our action step? We must persevere in living the life of active faith. We need to make a commitment. God, do not let me slow down. God, do not let me tire out. When I am weary, bring someone alongside of me who can encourage me, but Father, help me to keep on. And so, our prayers help us, God of strength, when we are overwhelmed and we are overtired by the many tasks we face, help us to shine the light of Jesus. Help us, God of hope, to never let go of the promise that such living will yield a harvest that will glorify your name. Bob Hartman in the journal Plugged In shared a single page of a journal entry from an evangelist almost 200 years ago. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday evening, May 12th. Preached at St. George's. Kicked out again. Sunday morning, May 19th. Preached, and at this point you can hear his frustration. Preached at St. somebody else's. Deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th. Preached on the street. Kicked off the street. This is the most disturbing. And I thank God it's never happened to me. Sunday Morning, May 26th, preached out in a meadow, chased out of a meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday morning, June the 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Now, you may have heard of this guy. Heard the name John Wesley? founder of the Methodist church, even though he didn't like that idea. Listen to his last journal entry on that page. Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in pastor, 10,000 people came. And through the work of John Wesley and his, part, his brother Charles and their partner George Whitfield, God led a revival movement that changed the face of Great Britain and our country. And I believe God wants to use us. I think Wesley is a great example of you don't give up. It's really easy right now in the midst of everything going on to just say give up, isn't it? All of us are tired. All of us are worn by life in general. But God is encouraging us. Keep on. And as we look at the law of harvest, remember the law tells us God will not be mocked by our self-will and ungodliness. The law of the harvest then says, keeping that in mind, you're going to reap what you sow, so we need to be reaping, sowing to the Spirit and, and shining the light of Christ in this world. And the law of the harvest encourages us. Don't give up. Keep on doing good every chance you get. So today I ask you, let's let's commit. Uh, The Interpreter's Bible years ago headlined this whole passage as the agriculture of the spirit. I may not grow a plant, but I want to be part of this growth and harvest. So let's ask God to help us to keep on, to refuse giving up, And never lose sight of our purpose. Bow your heads. And if you are at a place in your life. where you just don't know how you have the strength to take another step. If you are weary and worn. Would you just simply raise your hand and let me pray for you.